Romans 8. Today we're going to read verses 31 through 39. Romans 8, 31 through 39. Please stand with me as we read God's Word together. When I finish reading, I'm going to say, this is God's Word, and I would love for you to say, thanks be to God. So here we go, Romans 8, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated and let's pray together. Father, thank you for the intentional and perfect way that you not only spoke your words to and through prophets and apostles, but Father, thank you for the perfect way, the precise way that you have put your words together for us in our Bibles. To be able to hear from you exactly what you want us to hear, exactly when you want us to hear it. Father, your word is alive and it's active, it's timeless, and it's transforming. And I pray this morning that as we listen to your words to us from Romans 8, that Father, your timeless living, active, transforming word would do deep work in our hearts. That your words would change our hearts. That your words, through the power and work of the Holy Spirit, would fill our hearts with joy as we are more fully, more completely understanding your love for us in Christ. Help us, Father. Help us have ears to hear, eyes to see, minds that are able to understand, hearts that are ready and able to receive your word. Thank you, Father, that you love us. Thank you that you are for us. Thank you that you are with us and, and through the Spirit you are in us. Thank you that you love us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. Well, good morning again, everyone. Good morning, everyone who's joining us at home. It's good to be with you this morning. We're going to talk today about God's love. We're going to dig into Romans 8 together. Before we look at the text, I want to share a quote with you. This quote comes from a man named A.W. Tozer, from a book that he wrote, 1961, called The Knowledge of the Holy. In that book, A.W. Tozer says this, it's on the screen, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What Tozer says in this quote is that however we perceive God in our, in our minds and in our hearts is going to affect everything else about us. It's going to affect the way we see ourselves. It's going to affect the way we see the world. It's going to affect our experience of joy, hope, and peace, and love, all the things that we're celebrating during Advent. The way we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's what A.W. Tozer says. So let me ask you a question this morning. When you think about God, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? Just think for a moment about God. What do you think of Him? What do you think about Him? Do you think He's mean? Do you think He's cold and distant? Do you think He's a really good boss and a really good king, but, but not, a, not a really good friend? Or do you think He's maybe just kind of a jolly, powerless, white-bearded fella sitting up on a cloud somewhere? looking out over this world, looking out at your life, but really not able to do anything about any of it, what comes into your mind when you think about God? Tozer says that's the most important thing about us. Now, what's interesting is another great hero of the faith, contemporary of Tozer's, a guy named C.S. Lewis, said something very different. C.S. Lewis says that the most important thing about us is not what we think of God, but what God thinks of us. And I think they're both true in different ways, but listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis, also up on the screen. C.S. Lewis says, I read in a periodical, that's like a, an antiquated word for like a magazine or a newspaper, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is, no, is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in his son, it seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. You know what God thinks of you? You know what comes into his mind his infinite, all-knowing mind when he thinks of you? In Christ, 
When the Father thinks of you, He thinks of you with love. Deep love. True love. Life and eternity changing love. See, God wants us to understand in the deepest part of our souls the depth of His love for us. The Apostle Paul prayed for this very thing in, in the letter that he wrote to the Ephesians. Look at these words on the screen. He's, he's now talking about this prayer that he's praying for the church at Ephesus. And he's saying, I'm going to pray something really important for you, something that matters more than anything else. Let me tell you what I'm going to pray for you. Look at what Paul prayed for the Ephesians. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted, grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul prayed that the Ephesians would know how much God loved them, how big his love really is, how full it is, that they would understand that deep in their hearts and in that they would have strength and power. You see, God's love for us in Christ is bigger than we could possibly imagine, and it's better than we could ever hope. Let me say that again. This is the main thing I want you to leave with this morning. God's love for you in Christ is bigger than you can possibly imagine, and it's better than you could ever hope. That's what I want to come into your mind when you think of God that he loves you with the love that is bigger than you could ever imagine and better than you could ever hope. And that when you think about what God thinks about you, you'll think, man, God loves me. In Jesus, with this life-changing, eternity-changing, transforming kind of love. God's love for you in Christ is bigger than you could possibly imagine and better than you could ever hope. I pray today, but as we dig into Romans 8, 31 through 39, you will experience the love of God in such a profound and real way that it changes you, that it frees you, that it releases you into a life of joy in Jesus, a life that, that's freed up to love God and freed up to love others and, and freed up to live in this world in a way that makes Jesus known to others because you're so filled up with and freed up in the love of God. That's what I'm praying for this morning. Romans 8, 31 through 39 is a text that, that leads us in this. It's the kind of passage in the Bible that lights us up with hope and it frees us up for joy. Sometimes we read it and it might even make us shout a little bit, laugh a little bit because it's just so good. And so let's get into it. And if you feel like you need to shout a little bit this morning, if something just like an amen starts to bubble, just let it go. There's freedom here in the love of God today. I see you, Alan Herger. I see those eyes. You're waiting. You got suspenders on. Let's do this, okay? Here we go. Romans 8 starts with no condemnation right from the very beginning. Romans 8, 1, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's unbelievably good news. 
Because of God's love for you in Christ, there's now no condemnation. It starts with no condemnation, and Romans 8 ends with no separation. In Christ, there is no condemnation, and in Christ, there is no separation from the Father's love for you. Now, what Paul does in the section we're going to look at this morning, verses 31 through 39, is he asks four questions, huge questions, important questions, life-changing questions, to really press into our hearts the reality of God's love for us, particularly in the face of lies that we might believe about God and his love. When our minds are tempted to believe a lie that says, God doesn't really love me. God couldn't really love me. Yeah, God loves me, but he doesn't like me. He's not for me. Paul asks these questions so that as we are thinking about God and as we are thinking about his love for us, our minds and our hearts will be filled with truth. Truth about God and his love. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at these four questions one at a time as we work through the text, starting in verse 31. Here's the first question. Thinking about God's love and the way he loves us in Christ. Here's the first question Paul asks. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, really, in the first seven chapters of the book of Romans, Paul's been building this argument that in our sin, we are enemies of God, we are separated from him, dead in sin, no spiritual life in us, God's enemies positioned to receive only his wrath. But because of Jesus and his work through his life and his death and his resurrection, we can be freed from sin, we can be welcomed into God's family, and now be positioned only to receive God's love in Christ. That's the great news that Paul has been teaching through the book of Romans. And then he gets to chapter 8 in in verse 31, and he says, what are we going to say to all this? What should we say about these things, the way God loves us in Christ? And the first thing he says is, if God is for us, who can be against us? He's been building this case that says in Christ, God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? Now, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that in this life, there aren't going to be people who aren't against us. People are going to be against us. Things are going to not work out the way we want them to. We're going to have enemies in this life. People will be against us at work, at home, on social media. Things won't work out the way we want them to. We have an enemy named Satan who's going to try to take us down and take us out in the midst of all these things being against us. Here's a lie we're tempted to believe. It's on the screen. God isn't really for me. God isn't really for me. There's all these things that are against me, and because of the presence of these enemies, the presence of Satan, a world that that just seems bent away from God and away from my good, because of all that, it seems like God isn't really for me. That's a lie that we're tempted to believe. Now, here's the truth we need. In Christ, God loves me. God loves me. And he is totally for me. God is totally for you, completely for you. He's for your ultimate good in Christ. God is for you in your suffering. God is for you even when others are against you. Look up just a couple of verses before the passage I just read to verse 28. Verse 28 says, and we know 
that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. In the original language, that little phrase, all things, means all things. Everything. Good things, hard things, bad things, enemy things, virus things, all things work together for your good in Christ. Why? Because in his love for you, God is totally for you. I know that's hard to believe when things aren't good. I know it's hard to believe when things are hard. I know it's hard to believe when we have someone against us or something that feels like it's against us to believe that God is for us. Those of us who are parents understand how this can be. There are times when we are absolutely 100% for our kids, and yet we are 100% against the thing they're asking us for. We tell them no, not because we hate them, but because we love them. We discipline them, not because we were against them, but because we are for them. And the same is true with our Father. In Christ, God is totally for us. He loves you and He likes you. He is for you. Just for a moment, right where you sit, I want you to just slowly say that. God is for me. You can say it in your head. If you're feeling kind of brave, you can say it out loud. God is for me. He's for you. In Christ, God is totally for you. Second question in the text. This is in verse 32. How will he, God, not also graciously give us all things. Let me read the whole verse. It says, He, verse 32, who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Here in verse 32, Paul is making an argument called a greater to lesser argument. He's arguing from a greater thing to prove the reality of a lesser thing. And the greater thing is that in his love for you, God gave up his son Jesus for you. He didn't spare him, but instead he sent him to the cross to die in your place for your sins. And what Paul is saying if, is, is if, he, if he gave up Jesus, if he didn't hold back, and if he didn't spare his son for you to be saved how will he not also give you everything you need to enjoy Jesus forever? If he did the great thing, he will certainly do the lesser thing. It's like, it's like if, if somewhere in our relationship together, I gave you a briefcase with a million dollars in it, and I just said, here, this is for you. I love you. I want to give you this incredible gift. And I said, for real, take it. This is yours. I love you. I'm just going to graciously and generously give you this gift then like if we're together at a, at a restaurant and you're like a, a dollar short to pay for your meal, am I going to withhold that dollar? 
If I've given you a million? No way. Of course, I'm probably going to buy your meal. I'll just make you pay for it and then I'll give you a buck. I'll buy the whole thing. The same is true with God. He's given you Jesus. He's given up Jesus for you. The argument is if, if God spared not his own son, the greatest, most precious and costly gift, how could he possibly fail to do lesser things that guarantee we receive everything essential for our salvation and our satisfaction in Christ? He won't. Sam Storms says that the all things that, that God guarantees here includes, listen carefully, all those blessings spiritual and material, that we require on the path toward that final transformation and full joy in Jesus. Let me say that again. The all things that God guarantees include all those blessings, spiritual or material, that we require on the path toward that final transformation and full joy in Jesus. J.I. Packer said it like this. Listen, he said, Paul is telling us that there is no ultimate loss or irreparable impoverishment to be feared. If God denies us something, it is only in order to make room for one of the other things that he has in mind. The meaning of he will give us all things can be put thus. One day, we shall see that nothing, literally nothing, which could have increased our eternal happiness has been denied us. And that nothing, literally nothing, that could have reduced that happiness has been left with us. What higher assurance do we want than that? Here's the lie we're tempted to believe. It's on the screen. God's holding out on me. He's holding out. He's not giving me everything I need to be fully happy in Jesus. He's not done everything that's, that's required for me to experience true joy in Him. He's holding out on me. Here's the truth we need. God loves me. And will give me everything I need to experience eternal joy in Jesus. God is so generous. He's eternally and totally generous in his love for you. He's not holding out on you. He's given up his son so that you could become his son. He's given up his son so that you could become his daughter. He's paid the ultimate price to offer you the ultimate welcome He's not holding out. He has given you everything in Jesus you need to experience eternal joy in Jesus. He loves you so generously. Third question. Third question. This question comes in verses 33 and 34. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Let me read the whole thing. It says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect, his chosen, dearly loved people whom God has welcomed to himself? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Paul's point here is not to deny that, that anyone will ever charge us or, or condemn us. Like, here's the truth. We live in an incredibly condemning world right now. Like, cancel culture is real. 
We live in this society at this time where like we are so incredibly judgmental of others who think differently than us. We're, we're very quick to condemn and cancel other people. God through Paul is not saying here that, that, that others are never going to try to condemn you or cancel you or, or charge you with things or judge you. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is that compared to the welcome of acceptance we've received in Christ, all that other condemning, canceling nonsense is just that. It's nonsense. Because of the welcome and the, the acceptance we've received in Jesus. He makes it really clear. He says, Who's going to bring any charge against you? It's God that justifies. And that word justifies, that's a legal word that describes the the real work that God has done on our behalf in Christ. He's saying, yes, you've sinned. Yes, you've fallen short. Yes, you've broken my law. Yes, you've chased after other false gods. Yes, you are guilty. But because of Christ and his perfect life and his death and his resurrection, in him now, By grace, through faith, you're no longer guilty, but in fact, you're right. You're right with me. You're right with the very rightness of Jesus. Not because you've lived a perfect life, but because he has. Not because you've died a death to show me that you're worthy of my love, but because he did. Not because you've conquered sin and conquered death, but because he did. He rose again. Paul says, Christ Jesus is the one who saves. He's the one who died. He's the one who was raised. He's the one who is at the right hand of God right now interceding for us, standing in our place as our Savior, standing in our place with his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection as as everything we need to no longer be condemned but be accepted by God. And because we're accepted by God in his love, Man, we have so much freedom, so much joy, so much hope. Listen, when you hear this lie, and I know you hear it because I hear it. When you hear this lie, I'm unacceptable to God. My past is so messed up. My present is so just underwhelming. My future looks so hopeless God could never possibly want me. When you hear that lie or that series of lies, ask yourself a follow-up question. When did God save me? Did did he save me when I got it all cleaned up and all figured out and, and had enough put together to show him, here God, look what I've done, now save me. No, the Bible says that, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At just the right time, while we were weak, Christ died for us. See, it never depended on our work. It never depended on our good enough. It never depended on us showing God how great we are. It's all about Jesus. And he did everything necessary for you to be freed from condemnation, forgiven of all your sins, and welcomed into a relationship with God forevermore. Here's the lie. Here's the lie we're tempted to believe. God holds my past, present, and future failures against me. Like God's going, yeah, okay. I'm going to kind of plug my divine nose and I'll welcome you in, but, but let's just keep one thing straight. I'm not really that crazy about you. I know what you've done. I know who you were. I'll take you, but I'm not excited about you. 
Like we kind of think about like God's relationship with us, like, like those awful moments in gym class when you're in elementary school and you're the last kid waiting to be picked and you're kind of like, well, I guess they got to take me. I'm the last one. That's not the way God feels about you. He delights in you in Christ. Listen, the truth we need is that Jesus loves us and he took the full punishment and paid the full price to set us free from the penalty of sin and the power of shame. Both of those things. He died in our place as our sacrifice. He was raised from death and that same power frees us from the power of shame. You might be going like, yeah, but, but my, like right now, I'm such a mess. I'm so broken. Like I just have such a hard time walking in faith day in and day out. And maybe in your mind, you're like, okay, God thinks about me like this. He's going, okay, I'll save you. But if you ever fill in the blank, then God's kind of like, well, I'm done with you then. No. You have been fully welcomed and totally accepted in Christ. And that's true now, and that's true forever. Jesus paid it all. When he died, when he rose, he paid it all to free us from the penalty of sin and the power of shame. That's the truth we need. And it's all because of God's love for us. Fourth and final question. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of God? Who shall separate us from the love of God? Paul continues, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no, no. In all these things, those are awful things, by the way. Did you notice that? They're all awful. Tribulation, that's not good. Distress, I hate that. Persecution, um, we don't experience much of it here. Maybe people looking at us a little weird sometimes, but there are places in the world where Christians are still being killed for their faith in Jesus. That's horrible. Famine, that means there's no food to eat, not just the kind of food we like, like no food, that's bad. Nakedness, well, that'd be awful, especially this time of year. Danger or sword, none of that is good. Those all feel like and sound like things that could separate us from the love of God. Awful things, horrible things. Being, being slaughtered like sheep. Horrible. No, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors. What? Feels like we're being conquered. I mean, that's what life, probably in my own overly emotional mind and heart, feels like a lot of the time. I'm just being conquered. I stink at this, I stink at that, this is hard, I don't like that, I'm just being conquered all the time. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then just to make sure we really get it, to make sure we really get it that nothing's going to separate us from the love of God, that even in these awful things, God's going to do really good things. Look at verse 38, this is unbelievable. Neither death nor life. Not your death, not someone else's death. Death's not going to separate you from the love of God. Death becomes a doorway into a fuller experience of the love of God through Christ. Not life. Nothing in this life is going to separate you from the love of God. Nor angels, nor rulers. 
nothing demonic, not even, not even an angelic messenger of God, as hard as that is to fathom, is going to separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Nor things present, nothing today, nor things to come, nothing in the future, nor powers, it's demonic powers, Satan and his demons, they're not going to take you away from the love of God. Nor height, nor depth, nothing beyond our sight, nothing below our sight, nor anything else in all creation. Let's just, let's just get it all covered. Nothing, in all, nothing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. Here's the lie. My enemies, my suffering can separate me from God's love. That's the lie we're tempted to believe. In our suffering, when we have enemies, when others are coming against us, when, when our own mind and heart, when we feel like our own worst enemy, which we are a lot of the time, are you a created thing? Yes, you are. You can't separate yourself from the love of God, Christian. Neither can I, nor can anyone or anything else. Here's the truth. Listen, nothing, including sin and death, and no one, including the world, the devil, or me, can separate me from God's love for me in Christ. Nothing. You and I have great enemies. Jesus has defeated them all. You and I, we're really great sinners. We don't have to like take a class to get better at sinning. I don't. I'm sure you don't either. I'm a pretty great sinner. But listen to this. Jesus is an even greater Savior. Our suffering in this life is great. It's great. Life is hard. It just beats the snot out of us. Let's be honest. It's hard. But Jesus' love for us is even greater. I love this quote from John Owen. Old, smart, theologian, teacher. John Owen says this, We cannot love grace into a child, nor mercy into a friend, we cannot love them into heaven, though it may be the great desire of our soul. But now, the love of Christ, being the love of God, is powerful and fruitful in producing all the good things which He wills unto His beloved people. Listen to this. He loves life, grace, and holiness into us. Let me say that again. He, God, loves life, grace, and holiness into us. He loves us also into covenant. He loves us into heaven. That's God's love for us. The prophet Jeremiah said it like this, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Listen, Christian, in Christ, those are the words of the Father to you right now. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Everlasting means forever in every direction. And so here's a mind-blowing thought. Think about this for a minute. Just let this hit you and blow your mind. You know how long God has loved you? As long as he's been God. He has loved you as long as he's been God. That's an everlasting love. Eternity past, right now, eternity future. That's how long he's loved you and how long he will love you. He will love you into an eternal future. 
He will never stop loving you. He will never give up on you. He loves you. God's love for you in Christ is bigger than you could possibly imagine. God's love for you in Christ is better than you could ever hope. That's the love of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now that for every one of us who are here at the building today, for everyone who's listening at home, for anyone who will listen to this at any point in the future, Father, I pray that you would grow in our hearts a fuller and a deeper understanding of your love for us. Not just mentally in our minds going, yes, God loves me. He has to. He's God. But in our hearts, may we feel that love in a real and life-changing way. Free us into a life where we are joyful in, freed up in your love for us, God. Do that work in us through your spirit. We need your help. We're just so prone to wander and doubt and disbelieve, and we need your help. And so, Father, we ask that you do it now through your spirit. And as we transition now to celebrating communion, I pray that as we see broken bread and as we see poured out juice, we would see our Savior Jesus. Not because he's in that bread or in that juice, but because that bread and that juice symbolizes his broken body, his blood shed for us, and that's real, and that's true. Help us to celebrate this morning, God, your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.